You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is from Ecclesiastes 7. We're going to begin in verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out of both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. And see this alone I found, that God has made man upright, and they have sought out many schemes. This is the word of the Lord. Well, maybe you're familiar with the movie Imitation Game. came out about 10 years ago. It's based on the true story of a code breaker named Alan Turing. Uh, during the early stages of the Second World War, the British intelligence agency recruited this mathematical genius and a team of smart, very smart people in order to decipher complex enemy codes which were previously unbreakable. And the code that was being used by the enemy at the time was called enigma, or riddle, or puzzle, which would send secret messages that couldn't be understood because they would change the cipher system every single day. It was like a wild goose chase. But Turing, as you know from the movie, and his team created the system, pretty much the prototype to the computer, that was able to decipher these secret messages that gave the allied troops the upper hand in the war. Now, I find this story Very interesting, especially the word enigma, because it's actually one of the best ways to describe one of the central themes in the book of Ecclesiastes. The writer, the preacher, almost 40 times says, all of life is what? Vanity, hevel in the Hebrew. It means mist or smoke. Another way of saying it is this, life is an enigma. Life is a puzzle that you just can't figure out. If you've ever found yourself saying, I just don't get it, life does not make sense to me, things don't add up, 
Whether you know it or not, you have actually come to a very wise, a very humble, and a profoundly biblical conclusion. When you're like, I just don't understand life, you are in a very good place. See, the preacher of Ecclesiastes is walking us through this long search uh, that he's taking for concrete meaning in the world. He has left no stone unturned. He's exploring all these various things. He searches in wealth. He searches in pleasure. He explores the female body in success, in work, in his religious experience, in his religious performance, in knowledge. And he continues to find the same thing, that the meaning of life is out of reach. It cannot be found in anything or anyone under the sun, period. And in the passage that we're looking at today, he returns to a theme that he comes back to often throughout this book. It's the theme of wisdom. This is a book that's found in the wisdom literature. And wisdom is the skill of applying knowledge. It's not just knowing things. It's knowing how to apply it in all of life's complex situations. And he tells us that in his search for meaning in this world, he looked very closely, applying that wisdom to see if he could discern a pattern or the word that he uses three times in this passage is scheme. He's looking for the scheme. Look at me again in verse 25. I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the what? The scheme of things. So he's using reason. He's using experience. He's using observation of the data. He's like a social scientist to see if he can crack the code and figure out the riddle, the pattern behind it all, as if... Life has this big curtain that's waiting to be opened and for us to find, you know, the mysterious pattern, just waiting to be discovered so that we can get the upper hand in life. We often look at life trying to figure out the patterns as if we can one day master the formula. Ah, I understand it now. Think about some of the silly things we say. We say things like, if something bad happens today, maybe something good will happen tomorrow. Or we say things, bad, ha- or bad things happen in what? Threes. There's a pattern to bad things. Or com- uh, karma. If I do a bad thing, a bad thing's going to come back around. Or if I do a good thing, a good thing's going to come back around. Or if I do a bad thing, I have to offset it with an equal amount of good things. We even talk about the universe giving us signs, like seeing a repeated time on the microwave. Like three days in a row, I saw one, two, three, four. What does it mean? What is the universe trying to tell me that you take lunch at 1230? <laughs> but here's the problem. God arranges life in such a way that you can't figure out the pattern. There's an order to life, yes, but it's not the kind that we can comprehend. Life is unsearchable. Life is unpredictable. Life is uncontrollable. And so let's look first at the realization the preacher gives to us that life is unsearchable. Look with me again in verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be Joyful, And in the day of adversity, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So this is very basic instruction. When a good day comes, when good seasons come into your life, if something good comes into your life, don't try to figure it out. Here's a crazy idea. Simply enjoy it. Something good happens, enjoy it. Stop asking, like, what have I done to deserve this? Nothing. (laughs) 
Stop overthinking it because you actually ruin the experience of a good thing by trying to explain it, by trying to figure it out. And then when bad times come, come into our lives, stop asking, what does this all mean? Is this a sign? Instead, he says, simply remember that God has made them both. God has made them both. In fact, consider that God has intentionally orchestrated life so that you can't figure it out. It's rigged that way so that you can't know what's coming. That uncertainty that we experience on a daily basis, I hate to break it to you, is intentionally there by God to keep us dependent, to keep us looking to him. Look with me again, in, uh, actually look with me in, in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. We're told this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. So what the writer of Deuteronomy is saying is that what's known about life, what is to be known about God, has already been revealed to us where? Where? In his word. So turn your heart to search out this kind of knowledge with intensity. intensity. Don't settle for uncertainty. There is no reason that we as Christians should be ignorant when it comes to knowing who God is and what he has revealed. You and I have access to his character. You and I have access to his promises. You and I have access to his will for our life in Christ Jesus. We ought to know those things. Those are not hidden for us. They are given to us in his word. But the hidden things, the secret things, many of the whys that we demand to know, who do they belong to? They belong to God, not us. There's an entire realm of life that is none your business, that is not for you to know. There's a knowledge that is so out of reach for humans that it will only leave you frustrated the more that you try to obtain it. So today what we need to settle is what the preacher discovered after his long frustrating journey. He's essentially saying, use me as a cautionary tale. Don't go down that same route I have. Let me spare you the frustration. Verse 24, what exists is beyond reach and very deep. Who can discover it? It's a rhetorical question. No one. No one. He turned his heart to know, to search out, to seek out the scheme. He studied. He looked long and hard. He chased down every lead. He even looked to, uh, for a wise man or a wise woman that had gone before him. And he realized that there's a kind of knowledge in this world that exists. Trying to figure out life, trying to figure out God that is just too deep. It's always going to be out of reach. Why? Because God's depth is deeper than deep. God's depth is too deep for wisdom, too deep for experience, too deep even for the greatest minds in the world coming together. His ways are far beyond our comprehension. And so just a moment midway here to reflect. And I want you to consider this question. Are you striving to know God personally or are you striving to figure out what he's going to do and why? Let me ask it differently. Are you seeking to enjoy God 
Or are you seeking to evaluate his ways? Are you savoring his presence? Or are you always just examining what he's up to? The Bible tells us that God will be found by those who seek him. By those who seek him. And I think just pastorally here for a moment, I think that this is the reason why a lot of people today are having a hard time experiencing God in a joyful and in a meaningful way. Because knowing God and experiencing his love and his power and living for him with joy and hopefulness and resilience, it's all going to feel out of reach as long as we're preoccupied with trying to figure out what God's up to. We always talk about what's God up to? You don't know, we don't know. His beauty, his wisdom, his kindness, his love, his generosity, all of it is gonna be sadly obscured and overshadowed when we're obsessed with making sense of it all. And worse, it gets worse. The moment that we think that we've got God all figured out is the very moment that we have reduced him to something that is less than God. If you can wrap your mind around your God, it's not God. Novation once said, for God is greater than mind itself. His greatness cannot be conceived. If we could conceive of his greatness, he would be less than the human mind. This is good logic here. He is greater than language and no statement can express him. All our thoughts about him will be less than him and our loftiest utterances will be trivialities in comparison to him. You will never come close to understanding or explaining who God is and that is reason to worship. Not to stress, not to get frustrated, but to bask in the glory and the presence of such vastness. Instead, we have to come to grips with what the Apostle Paul sang, not just said, but sang in Romans chapter 11 when he said, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, not oh, my wisdom, but oh, God's wisdom. How what? Unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable or impossible to understand are his ways. I don't get God and I love it. I don't ever want to change it. Because the moment I get God, he's not God. I'm God. The second thing we see here is that life is unpredictable. Look at me in verse 15. Man, he is so cynical. In my vain life, just life is just one big vain existence. I've seen everything. I've seen it all. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Now, there's many difficult things about the book of Ecclesiastes, but one is this, that the preacher says these really difficult things that most people think about, but people often don't articulate in church. He addresses these issues that are super complex, but then he doesn't resolve them. He says things like, I found one wise, woman, or one wise man, and I didn't find one wise woman. And you're like, wait, what? I don't know. I don't know what he meant by that. It's just like he just says difficult things. He's like, all right, let's move on. But it's intentional. He's not solving all the world's problems. He's not trying to put your mind at ease. This is not owed to you. He's not trying to answer all your questions about God. That's not owed to you either. 
What he's doing, and this is important to grasp this book here midway, what he's doing is he's highlighting that life is puzzling. The moment that you think you've got life figured out, it's going to do something unexpected. And one of the most puzzling things that he observes, and I think we observe this in our lifetime as well, is that the righteous person, whom you would assume would be blessed and live this long, prosperous life, they perish. Bad things happen to good people. And then wicked people live these long, happy lives. What? That's so random. In fact, that seems to contradict wisdom's teaching. Where's the Proverbs? What? But you see, while life in God's kingdom is never going to be random because God is sovereign over all of creation, it is going to appear extremely random from our vantage point under the sun. We don't see things how God sees things. And the experience of the preacher is very similar to the experience of the psalmist. Maybe you're familiar with Psalm 73. And in Psalm 73, the psalmist recalls his struggle to make sense of life and specifically to make sense of the fact that the arrogant and the wicked prosper in life. He says things like they don't suffer, their bodies are like plump and sleek, which means they like eat good. They don't face the same troubles that we face. They talk all kinds of nonsense. They threaten people. They even curse God. And somehow it just never catches up with them. And they live comfortably. And then he begins to question his own life and his own decisions. Wait a minute. If that's what happens to them, then was there any point to me living a righteous life? Was there any point to me living obediently to God? What was the point? Because it doesn't seem like it to me. He even says, it all seems vain. Was it all just a waste? Was I just totally off track? But then he says this in verses 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. When I tried to figure it all out, I was burdened by frustration. It's totally absurd. But then through worship, through getting my eyes on God by looking beyond the sun, by looking beyond these circumstances that perplex me, then it clicked. Then I discerned their end. And what he realizes is some pretty deep theological stuff. Along with understanding that life is unpredictable, he realizes that though life is unpredictable, the things that we see are not final. That God is with his people. That he supports his righteous through suffering. That God is our portion forever. That God is allowing us to experience his glory in eternity. That glory awaits his people. And that justice will come. And what he realizes is that though the wicked are at ease and they appear to live these long, prosperous lives, they too will face destruction. And what seems to be this like path of upward mobility that frustrates us and doesn't make sense in God's kingdom, in God's economy is actually a slippery slope downward into destruction. It looks like they're living their best life And in some sense, they are. 
because it will all be downhill from here. Life is too unpredictable to simply figure out, to make sense of, to know exactly why. So he's telling us, stop wearing yourself out. Are you tired? Maybe you're on this journey that you don't need to be on. Maybe you're searching for answers that you don't need to know. Instead, fix your eyes on God. Fix your eyes on his goodness and on his character and on his support and on his promises and on the spiritual blessings that are ours right now through faith in Jesus Christ. Because here's the truth, friend. God with you in the uncertainty is far greater than life of certainty without him. And finally, life is uncontrollable. Now wisdom, don't get me wrong, wisdom is a powerful tool. You read all about wisdom in the Proverbs and all throughout scripture. In fact, we're told here that one person with wisdom is more powerful than 10 rulers combined. Wisdom can bring extraordinary opportunities. Wisdom can be, uh, can be applied to solve some very complex issues and dilemmas that we face as a human race. Wisdom can do a lot of things. But the preacher knows firsthand that wisdom has limits. Wisdom is simply not powerful enough to control all of life's outcomes. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how experienced you are. It doesn't matter how much of the Bible you know. It doesn't matter how innovative you are. Life will be uncontrollable. And he even says things like this. You, you can be wise, but it's not going to control the awful things that people say about you. He even says you can be wise, but it's not even going to be able to control the awful things that you say about people. You can be wise, but it's not going to control the fact that you still sin. You can be wise, but it's still not going to control the fact that temptation comes your way. So the preacher alludes to this figure in the Proverbs named Lady Folly. Now, pause. Please don't take offense to this. Because what we also see in Scripture, in the Proverbs specifically, is wisdom is personified as a woman. So there's Lady Folly and there's Lady Wisdom. Plus, the Bible, a lot of times, there's plenty of like foolishness and evil that is assigned to men. We have the monopoly on foolishness in Scripture, so don't freak out here. But in the Proverbs, we see there's Lady Wisdom who calls out from the streets, beckoning men, women, and children to come and to live wisely and flourish. But on the opposite side of the street, there's Lady Folly, whose, quote, heart is snares and nets. She seduces. She traps. She traps people in foolishness. She leads and lures people down the path of destruction. And the preacher has found himself following her voice from time to time. Now, King Solomon, who many actually believe is the preacher here, jury's out on that, but King Solomon was a prize example of this. He was one of the most powerful kings in human history, in Israel's history. He was profoundly wise. He was wiser than any other king. And yet in his wisdom, he was still, still susceptible. He was seduced by pleasure and power. And his life goes to show us that wisdom doesn't make you immune from sin. Wisdom doesn't make you immune from suffering. Wisdom doesn't make you immune from blowing your life up. And so having found the limits of wisdom, 
having realized that he is incapable of controlling how life turns out, he gives some really strange instructions. Look with me again in verse 16 through 18. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. What did he just say? You're not paying attention if you're not shocked by what he just said. Because it sounds like the preacher just said, live life in the middle. Live life moderately, which by the way is how a lot of believers want to live today. Don't be too extreme in your living for God. Calm down your like devotion to righteousness and holiness, but also don't be too extreme in your sinning. A little bit of God, a little bit of sin, you'll be all right. Is that what the preacher's saying? I think that'd be bad advice. I think that'd be bad advice. The extremes that he's warning us about are not righteousness and sin per se, but self-righteousness and unrighteousness. Think about this. The self-righteous person spends all of their energy working their hardest to be the best person that they can be in order to gain favor with God. It's the self-made person. As if when we are really good, we do our best, we do all the things right, we obey, in return, God is going to owe us a good life and a rewarding future. If I do X, Y, Z, then God in return will give me everything I ever dreamed of. And so what it is, it's a way of using religion, it's a way of using biblical wisdom to try to control life. And worse, to try to control God. If I do this thing, God must do that. But on the other hand, there's the unrighteous person who says, I can do whatever I want. It doesn't really matter. For the unbelieving unrighteous person, it's the person that doesn't believe in God. So they're thinking, my happiness is my job. My life is in my hands. So I'm going to do whatever I want to do. But also there's a strange mix of an unrighteous person that still believes in a God. And they think to themselves, it's no big deal. God will forgive me. God owes me forgiveness. I said a prayer way back when, when I was like four years old and some televangelist was on TV and I like walked to the screen and I said, I want to believe in Jesus. So now God owes me forgiveness in heaven no matter what. God just wants me to be happy. He owes me that now. See, in all these scenarios, whether it's the religious person, whether it's the irreligious person, they're all just various ways of doing the same thing. We're trying to control the outcomes. Tim Keller put it this way. To find God, we must repent of the things that we have done wrong. But to truly become Christians, we must also repent of the reasons we ever did anything right. Pharisees only repent of their sins, but Christians repent for the very roots of their righteousness too. We must learn how to repent of the sin under all other sins and under all our righteousness, the sin of seeking to be our own Savior and Lord. Wow. Repenting of our best Christianity. What does God desire? God desires a righteousness that comes through faith in his Son. Not that I take control of my life 
but a surrender to his grace, dependence upon him. So let me conclude with this. In this passage, the preacher shows us all of his search for meaning, and he doesn't find anything. But it wasn't a total waste. Because along the way, and along his you know, search to understand all of life's mysteries, he discovered something more important, more life-changing. What the preacher discovered is his need for a savior. Look at me again in our, our final verse, verse 29. See, this alone I found. This is the only thing I found to be true. That God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. After all of my searching, this is what I know. That God is good, that he made us good, and that he made us to live the good life with him. But we have all gone our own way. Or literally, we have all sought out our own devices. And now, the need that we have, the need at the core of our human heart and our existence, is far too great and far too deep for wisdom to solve. We don't just need insight. We need rescue. We need new life and meaning and forgiveness and power from beyond the sun. In short, friend, we need Jesus. The truth is we've all fallen into the same snare of sin. We've all given in to the temptation of foolishness. We have all tried to control our life and to be our own saviors. And yet the gospel is this, that Christ came to rescue us from all of the things that seek to ensnare us. Satan, sin, death, and our own selves. And our own pride and our own can-do-it attitude. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says this, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the what? The wisdom of God. So, what are your demands, first of all, that may be blinding you from seeing that Christ is wisdom incarnate? Is it signs? Is it worldly wisdom? Is it power? Is it this? Is it that? Or are you willing to receive the folly of Christ and him crucified? He goes on to say this in verse 30 and 31. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In other words, all that we could ever seek from life, wisdom included, is found in Christ alone. Nowhere is meaning and beauty and wisdom more fully revealed than what we find in the person of Jesus Christ. A theologian from the past put it this way. We see that our whole salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. In other words, it only makes sense in him. 
So whatever it is this morning that you are searching for, and you're here, so you're searching for something. Whatever it is that you're searching for, the Bible tells us will always be found in Jesus. And this theologian goes on to make this list. He says, if we seek salvation, it's found in the name of Jesus. If we seek gifting and power, they're found in the anointing of his spirit. If we seek strength, it's in Jesus' dominion. If we seek purity, it's found in Jesus' conception. If gentleness appears in his birth. If we seek redemption, it's found in his passion. If we seek to be declared innocent, it's found in his condemnation. If we seek to overcome the curse, we look to the cross. If we desire satisfaction, it's in his presence. If purification, it's in his blood. If reconciliation, in his rejection. If we seek to put to death our sin, we look to his tomb. If newness of life and eternal life, it's found in his resurrection. If we seek an inheritance, it's found in his ascension. If we seek protection or security or blessing, it's found in his kingdom. In him, in him, in him. Every good. And hear me, every, this is the wild claim. Take it or leave it. Every good that we could ever search for is found in Jesus. And so as we come to the end of our searching and we exhaust all other resources and we face the limit of everything under the sun, the gospel today beckons us once again, save yourself the heartache. Save yourself the frustration. Save yourself from spinning your wheels in the mud for the rest of your life and look no further than to Jesus. Receive him by faith. Receive all that he is. Receive all that is found in him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for...